Psalm 118. Psalms 113 through 118 are known as the halal, or the Psalms of Ascent. They are sung during the appointed feasts when the Jews gathered at Israel. Um, They're very messianic in content. Psalm 118 was to be sung after the Passover meal. And as we know, the Passover meal started just before sundown. The Jewish New Day started at sundown. Uh, We also know from the gospel accounts in Matthew and Mark that the apostles and Jesus sang a song after the meal before they left the upper room. Chances are very likely it was this very psalm. As I read this, imagine Jesus and the disciples singing this psalm. We'll start at verse 15. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live, and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me, and thou hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God. I give thanks to thee. Thou art my God. I extol thee. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. What an amazing bunch of verses. I mean, you think about, that was the day our Lord was crucified. And he says, this is the Lord, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's awesome. Let's pray. Father, We are so joyful that we get to come together today to worship you, Lord, and you alone. You are our salvation, and we thank you. Amen. To have your Bible with you, um, would you turn with me, for starters, to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Luke chapter 24 at verse 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb 
and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to he interpreted to them in the scriptures, the, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Because my stuttering machine's working this morning, I want to read that verse one more time, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Father, I pray that as we um, spend some time seeking to think clearly in reference to this book and the revelation of Jesus, I pray for your blessing on this church body. For Lord, you are our everything. As John said a little bit ago in this service, you are our salvation. We don't look to things that we've done. We look to a person. We are banking on a person. We rest in a person. And Lord Jesus, you are that. You are that glorious one who reigns supreme over all things. We love you. And Father, thank you so much for the rescue mission that has taken place by the sending forth of your Son. And I pray he'd be glorified in this attempt, uh, in this sermon, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been there where... I'm sure you have. You're watching a movie, and it's a movie you've seen probably 10 to 35 times. And you know the movie so well that you know what John Wayne's going to say before he says it. Or maybe some more modern-day actor, like some more modern-day actor. I don't know. I don't watch that. So, um, But as you're watching the movie, you know what's coming next. You know what's going to happen next. And it, it, it eventually gets a little bit tasteless. Well, as a believer, what I find over and over and over again so sweet is the word never gets tasteless. The scripture always has new insights. The scripture, it always has freshness to it. All you got to do is read it or sit down with a brother or sister in the Lord and ask them to read it. And you start talking about insights from the word and you go, How did I miss that? 20 plus years, 30 plus years, 40 plus years in Christ studying the word, and I never saw it. The sweetness of the word of God, how this is the inspired, inerrant word of the living God that we have in front of us this morning. It's always amazing to me. I can walk into goodwill and find the most precious gift to man, for three bucks. And there it is. Well, this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time talking on the subject of Christ and all of Scripture. 
because we've been in Genesis chapter 22, we'll be spending a little bit of time there later, and ask that question, where is Christ in the Old Testament? This is stated very plainly in our New Testament, but it's also proven very clearly in how the New Testament authors show Jesus from the text of the Old Testament. I've said it from this pulpit a bunch, and I'll say it again. The New Testament authors are the inspired interpreters of the Old Testament. If you find yourself at odds with the interpreters being the writers of the New Testament, you're wrong, they're right. And so as we read through and ask the question, so how do they interpret the Old Testament? What do they draw from the Old Testament? And I say, specifically, I'm thinking of the apostles, but even our Lord himself and the Lord Jesus' use of the Old Testament scriptures should, should shine great light onto us how we would read the Old Testament scriptures, how we should read the Old Testament scriptures. And what I find is from the Lord Jesus, from the apostles, say the whole word of God is directing our attention to Jesus Christ. It's a Christocentric book. It's a book about Christ. Did you notice there on the road to Emmaus with those disciples, as Jesus is speaking with them, he says, Moses, which is the law, and all the prophets pointing to the things about me, about Christ. That's Jesus' hermeneutic or Bible study method of how to go back to the Old Testament and read it is he's showing himself from that passage. And then we can look at the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, consistently bringing Old Testament passages to bear, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, when we first become Christians and we start reading our Bible, we can start to develop this dualism where in the Old Testament, God's there, but Jesus isn't there, and we're justified by works of the law. Then we come to the New Testament and we go, well, Jesus died, and now after Jesus died, we're saved by faith in Jesus since he came on the stage. I've heard this many times. You have, I'm sure. Perhaps you thought this, and maybe by God's grace, you're in this place this morning thinking that. As you read the Old Testament, as you read the New Testament, you eventually come to this place in your understanding of the Word as a Christian. No one has ever and will ever be justified by works of the law. Period. I say that with, with, with gusto, Because that is a damning message. Nobody's justified by works of the law. The purpose of the law was to point people to Christ by their failure of following the law. And so as we come to the study of the Old Testament scriptures and we ask the question, so where is Christ? It's like the Where's Waldo book. I'm sure you look at those periodically every day. I do too. As you're looking there, you see all these different colors and shapes and all this stuff like a busy city or setting or whatnot, and you're looking for, where's Waldo? Where is he? I want to find him. Then you eventually find him, and it ruins the book, because you know where he is every time you go back. (laughs) As we read the Old Testament, I think it's a very good connection to that where's Waldo idea is we go back to the Old Testament saying, so where's Christ? Where is he? Now, that's not some preacher's idea. That's not Dan throwing that out there. That's the Lord Jesus Christ himself there with the disciples on the road to Emmaus saying from Moses and all the prophets, Jesus is showing them himself. Not only that, you see that as a hermeneutical principle for all the apostles as well. Read chapter 1 of Hebrews today. Just sit down and read chapter 1 of Hebrews and you'll come away going, wow. 
Just read your New Testament and you will see this. It proves itself. So I want to talk about typology. Typology is a kind of a formulation, a study of finding something in the Old Testament that points towards a New Testament reality. So I'm going to stick kind of close to my notes for just a little bit, so hang with me on this. It's foretelling of a spiritual reality. The Old Testament person, place, or thing, or occurrence, that prefigures a New Testament reality. This is the type. So there's the type and the antitype. The Old Testament thing and the New Testament reality. So let me give you some. In the Old Testament, here's a person, Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, a place, the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, a thing, the rock in the wilderness. In the Old Testament, an event, the Passover. So think about this with me. Melchizedek, tabernacle, rock, and the Passover. Then we come to our New Testament. And the New Testament author points to Christ through these. Shows that Melchizedek is pointing to Christ. Shows that the tabernacle, think about the tabernacle. That's where people go to meet God, right? Well, where do you go to find God? I go to Jesus Christ. So much so that in John chapter 1, when it says that he came and dwelt among us, another translation could be, then Christ came and tabernacled among us. The rock in the wilderness and the Passover. As you see the blood that is spilt, that Passover lamb, his life is given, the blood is put over the doorpost, and death passes over them, once again, pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. That's the type. Okay, The antitype, anti meaning rather, rather than, not against, so not opposed, the New Testament reality that the Old Testament portion points to. Now, catch some of these finer points, if you would. The type is inferior to the antitype, meaning the Old Testament person-place thing is pointing to something far greater. This is why... Uh, it gets really sticky when somebody has Jesus Christ and then they go back and they start to put themselves under dietary laws in the Old Testament. Why would you do that? You have what the law was directing you to. Or when somebody has Christ, but they still want to go back and they want to, they want to say, I, I have to meet on Saturday because that's the Sabbath. That is the Sabbath day. It must be on Saturday. You have Christ. You have what all that was pointing to. Why would you go put yourself under slavery again to the law once you've been set free from the law in Christ? If you want a further explanation of what I just said, read the book of Galatians and Romans and the rest of your New Testament. Because this is the point of what is being declared by the New Testament authors. If you have the perfection of Jesus, stop trying to add to perfection. You cannot add to perfection. And yet in the goofy thinking of people's brains, we stop and think, well, now I want to help Jesus. And I just want to say, you're adding to perfection. You realize that doesn't, that you can't, right? You get that, right? Okay. <clears throat> the type is inferior to the antitype. The antitype is the end game. Christ is what this is pointing us towards. Once you have the antitype, you do not return to the type, as I just said. The type is the shadow to the antitype, which is the substance. You have this specifically spelled out in Colossians chapter 2. I have a few other verses, but I'm just going to go here for, for now. Um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. 
I always find this a very fascinating passage because the Apostle Paul is arming these believers for what may come up against them. Colossians 2.16. Listen to what he says in reference to this concept of shadow and substance. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. Why? These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, I've used this illustration before. You're walking down the beach, and there's Dan, and there's Dan's shadow, depending on where the sun is, and there's his shadow. My little guy, Benji, he's nine. Benjamin, he's nine. Benjamin is running, and he's going to run up and give, and give Dad a hug. And he tries to wrap his arms around that shadow and falls on the sand. No substance. Just the shadow. Beloved, if you have Christ, you have the substance of the Old Testament scriptures. It's leading to a person. It's leading to the Son of the living God. Now, this doesn't mean we do away with the Old Testament scriptures. I'm just saying, as Christians, the more we study the Old Testament scriptures, the more we go, this book's amazing. Because the continuity of these 66 books that have over 40 different authors and yet one author, this is an amazing book. And I see God's divinity the more I study because of the incredible continuity over the vast number of years that these books were written over showing that kind of harmony shows the divinity of the author. So seeing the type and antitype is not man's design. This is is important because sometimes you can hear this, this structure and go, are you pressing that there? And all I can say is this is the way I see Christ interpreting the Old Testament scriptures. This is how I see the New Testament authors interpreting the Old Testament scriptures. And the more I study the word, the more I see Christ throughout his Old Testament. It is too blatantly clear we should be looking for the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament in the sense of things that are prefiguring him or pointing forward to him. Biblical typology, this is kind of a warning, all right? So let me hang back for just a second. Biblical typology is very different than what is titled an allegorical interpretation. The Old Testament portions are true history. This is, this is vital, okay? I don't know if you know this, but there's been numerous debates over whether Adam was actually a historical figure or just some sort of an um, allegory. Jesus treated him like a historical figure, so the New Testament author, so I'm going to too. This is not some made-up story with spiritual meanings hiding in the cracks. Adam and Eve were real people that really existed and really did all that is recorded. Meaning the Old Testament scriptures are not some um, poetic, uh, allegorical thing, and then we take that and we just say whatever we want, New Testament theology, and cram it in there. No, these are true historical people. There really was a tabernacle. There really was Adam and Eve. There really was um, the Passover practice. These are true historical things that took place, but they were there with a far greater purpose than just being there at that time. They're leading to something far greater. Now, I'm going to give you three tiers of typology. 
well, I'll give you four. There's really three, but the fourth one's fun to say. So here you <clears throat> Number one, clearly explained by a New Testament author. I see this as like the gold standard. So you come to the New Testament and you hear or read an author in the New Testament with great um, clarity directs something from the Old Testament. You come to the New Testament and he doesn't leave anything for questioning. In the book of Hebrews, you see this done much where a here's the shadow, here's the substance. And the authority you have, you can bank on, is the authority of the New Testament author. Clear as crystal. That's your gold standard top tier. The next tier um, would be blatantly obvious in pointing to a New Testament reality. Blatantly obvious in pointing to a New Testament reality. Um, Genesis chapter 22, where we've been for a handful of messages, I see this on that tier. Because in the New Testament, you don't really have a New Testament author pointing, per se, to Isaac and saying he prefigures Christ. Now, I certainly believe he does, and we'll go there in a a little bit. But it's so blatantly obvious. For those of you who've been here, haven't you seen Christ throughout the preaching of Genesis 22? I, I mean, it's just as plain as the nose on your face. It's right there. It's so clear. Number three, very possibly pointing to a New Testament reality, but be careful. Because <laughs> every now and again, there's times where you read something in the Old Testament and you go, oh man, that, that seems to be pointing to Jesus, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's in the text. It's not as blatant as, say, a Genesis 22. The New Testament author doesn't necessarily point to it. But that certainly could be pointing to Christ. Do we have license to roll with it? I think we have license to roll with it as long as our statement always begins with, I think. I get a little nervous when people say, of course that's what it is. Can you just tell me on what authority? I think. I think that's pointing to him. And then your last here, New Testament theology forced into the Old Testament that, highly, that is highly questionable. So when you take a New Testament truth and you go back to an Old Testament text and you try to shove it in there somehow so that way it comes out and you go, see, do you see Jesus in the text, right? No, I don't. And either I'm, you know, missing it and this person is getting it, or no, truly, I, I, don't, I don't see how you're doing that. So when it comes to typology, beloved, we must have great care, and yet I believe from the example of the New Testament authors and Jesus himself, this is not an option for us to not look for Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. This is not optional. This is clear and should be done. We should see the Old Testament and the New Testament combined as one book with harmony leading us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament pointing us towards Christ, the New Testament pointing us back to the Lord Jesus, or the Gospels, the actual earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. So, a word of caution. Typology can lead one down a very bad path if not checked. And what I mean by checked is checked by the Scripture and checked by sound Bible students around you. This is where I get very... uh, Let's see, do I have time for a rant? I do. Um, No, I'm just kidding. 
This is where I, I really struggle when folks just want to be under a tree with their Bible with no connection to a local church, with no accountability, nothing built in, and they say, well, I understand the Bible perfectly, until you talk to somebody else with a Bible. Then you find out, well, maybe I don't understand it so well. Beloved, that's the beautiful sandpaper of the church. The sandpaper of being around other Christians and some of those rough edges get rubbed off in looking at the Word together. So just a word of caution. Let's be careful and let's take great joy in going to the Word with fellow believers. Never push an antitype beyond its limits set by the text. Typology is not the same as the allegorical interpretation, as I said earlier. Seek to be very sensitive to connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament dots, and we never want to wrongly attribute something to God's Word that doesn't exist by His design. That's, that's why I'm given kind of a word of caution, is just I don't want to put something there that's not there. I want to be as, as responsible and serious with this as I can be. And let me just make sure you're all on the hook. That is not preacher talk. That's Christian talk. You and I are held accountable for what we do with this word, how we treat this word, what level of seriousness this is. I realize that the world does not care whatsoever about typology. But you, Christian, this is, this is precious. These are the pearls of who we are. This is the gift from God as he's given this word. Can I remind you that there has been so much blood spilt in order for this book to be in this building in our hands this morning? Precious, sweet saints that, that we would love to be in their presence have died, burned at the stake for this word to be right here. And yet, it, unfortunately, it takes a backseat to other quote-unquote priorities. Can I just remind you, beloved, that number one, this is the inspired and errant word of God. Number two, the price that's been paid in order for this book to be ours, you just can't put a price on that. You just can't put a price on it. To think of the, of the hard work and the rough situation that... that so many different beloved saints lived in for the sake of having this put into our hand. It's deeply convicting to think of what has taken the priority of the Word of God in my life. When I think of what's happened in order for me to have a copy of this, and I got a bunch of copies of this, So why is typology important? Why are you wasting our time, Dan? This is God's marvelous design to show the glory of Jesus in God's perfect plan for redemption. Guys, can I just press that button again? This is all by design. There's a sovereign of the universe who reigns supreme over all things. And this book, the fact that the Old Testament points to Christ is not by mistake, it's not coincidence. There is a God of the details in charge of every little grain of sand on that beach over there who has put everything in absolute perfect place leading up to the glory of His Son. Just do a study, side study at some point, of all the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, and you tell me how every last one of those can find fulfillment in one guy. 
His divinity is everywhere. This study will profoundly mature us as students of the Word. One thing that it's done in my life over the years, the more I've done this study, is the Old Testament is not a foreign book to me. It's my book. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm in Christ. The Old Testament is not just a Jewish book. It is, but it's not just a Jewish book. It's a Christian's book. It's a book that speaks about the Messiah, and I know the Messiah. I got saved by the Messiah. I walk with the Messiah. I love the Messiah. And so reading through the Old Testament scriptures has become much more of a, of a personal reading because it's speaking of the one I love who has saved me. Thirdly, this study is a God-given safeguard for us against the Galatian heresy. We were never intended to worship in forms and shadows, but rather to glory in Christ. The Galatian heresy was found in a group of Christians leaving the sufficiency of the substance to go back to the shadow. Anytime someone tries to convince you that you need to mingle Old Testament ceremonies or Sabbath laws alongside with the work of Jesus, you have officially denied the work of Jesus. So when you say that Christ's sacrifice is insufficient, you are, you are making a mockery of his sacrifice. The study of typology will deeply embed in our thinking the fact that all things point to him and once we have Christ, we do not return to the works-based mindset. That's the world's religion. Works-based mindset is the world's religion. You can call it whatever man-made religion you want. You can put whatever banner over it you want. I don't care. It's all works-based religion. The glorious difference between Christianity and everything else man can throw at you is that we have a God who pursued us rather than us trying to pursue a God. They honk in the horns because they agree. That's great. <clears throat> so, that's kind of a crash course, and I know I moved through it quick, and there's more study to do as usual. But now think back with me to Genesis 22. You can, you can turn there if you would, just to have it available. I'm not doing a, a, a final exposition of the text, but just so that way it's on your lap. As I go back to the Old Testament scriptures and I start to read these portions with a, I'll say, with a far better understanding of the New Testament theology, with an understanding of the truth of Christ, with an understanding of what's taking place and what, what this has all been moving towards, then when I go back and I start reading or preaching through the Old Testament, I begin to see themes throughout the Old Testament, pointing towards the Lord Jesus. I don't know. I can't prove it. The text doesn't say it, but it's, it is what I think. I believe at some point, Jesus' discussion with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he's touched on chapter 22 in Genesis. If I'm wrong, we'll find out. But it's so profoundly clear to have the fingerprints of New Testament theology all over this event in the life of Abraham. Think about these, and I'm just going to give you a little list, okay? A promised child. Isaac is promised to Abraham. You will have a son. Isaiah 9.6. You, you don't have to turn there, but that promise, once again, in reference to Christ, that to us a son is given. Born contrary to nature. 
Remember, Abraham, you're old. Uh, Sarah, you're older. Um, we can't say she's old, she's older. And so you can't have children. Not only that, but when the promise comes, you're going to wait year after year after year after year after year after year until you really can't have kids. And then contrary to nature, I will give you a promised son. Strikes me like a, I don't know, like a virgin birth or something, you know, like that. Um, Then we come to Mary and Joseph and we see that Jesus is born contrary to nature. We see that Isaac is heir to the promise, just as Christ is heir to the promise. We see that Isaac is offered by the father. What's, it, what's probably the best-known verse in our world, in our country? Yeah, throughout the world. Best-known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave. And here we are, Abraham, coming to offer up his son, his only son, the one whom he loves. The father's love for the son, his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Beloved, it gives me goosebumps to think of the precision of the Spirit of God in the writing of these books. There's no coincidence here. It's not sloppy. Some man didn't slop this together with a bunch of whiteout. Rather, this is the sovereign of the universe who is doing all of this by his divine plan. Isaac was a willing sacrifice. Isn't it fascinating in the passage that Isaac never really fights against Abraham? Never says, Dad, what are you doing? Get me out of here. I don't want to be part of this. No, rather, he goes along with him. Now, eventually he asks, where's the lamb? Abraham's beautiful answer, the Lord will provide. But nonetheless, consistently, you do not see a fight between Abraham and Isaac, but as a willing sacrifice, much like the Lord Jesus in the garden, not to do his will, but the will of the Father who sent him. Let this cup pass from me. And God says, no. And the son says, then I will go and lay my life down. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Jesus goes to the cross completely willingly. And so as I see Isaac, I see Christ everywhere, all over the page. But he's everywhere. He's further in the text because we're told that where's the lamb? We need a lamb. Isn't it fascinating that then you come to John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I'm sure it's coincidence, I'm sure. Not only that, but then Abraham goes so far as to say, God will provide the Lamb. God will give the Lamb. Well, guys, it's like like Abraham has been reading John. Or like there is a supreme author of every one of these 66 books who knows the beginning from the end and has a glorious design in all of it. God will provide for himself a lamb. Just that statement alone is so profound in in the storyline of redemption because uh, in a lower sense, this all points towards the Passover lamb. This points towards the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. But even that is pointing forward. Even that is directing us to the greatest sacrifice. I remember, I think it was John Herleman at one point brought up um, 
the concept of two priests and they're offering sacrifice and for them in discussion at some point to say, you think there will ever be a sacrifice so we don't have to do this anymore? <laughs> that concept of we do this every year. We sacrifice for ourselves and we sacrifice for them. They come back, we sacrifice for ourselves and we sacrifice for them. This is never going to end. There's no end goal. How could we do this? Where's this going to go? And then we do have the glorious fulfillment of the sacrifices in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've always found it fascinating that the ram is caught by his horns, not by his leg, not by his side. There's no defect to his body. He's not bleeding anywhere. He's not hurt. He's an unblemished sacrifice. Do you see how I'm working with the different tiers here? I, I don't have a New Testament scripture that specifically says that's what that means. But, beloved, I can't help but see Christ in the Old Testament. He's called us to do that in the way he interpreted the Old Testament scriptures. And here we are. But there's even more. Go to Genesis 22 if you haven't turned there yet. And I want you to look at the promise made to Abraham because we have the pictures of Christ and his sacrifice But now we also have the promises. So pictures and promises. Pictures of Christ and now promises that will be fulfilled in Christ. Verse 15 of 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Now just, this is, this is the fun part, okay? This is where we get exhilaration in the study of the word. When lots of verses start to fall into our thinking as we start thinking about Christ in this passage, okay? Your offspring shall, shall possess the gate of his enemies. Remember that the father, he he tells the son that he will put all the enemies under his feet. We will see God do away with all of the enemies through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In your offspring. Remember, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. We have the seed of the woman. Now we're here with the seed of Abraham. And when you come to Galatians chapter 3, proof positive, great clarity. The Apostle Paul doesn't stutter in the least. He says this is in reference to Jesus Christ. The seed of Abraham ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ. Every nation will be blessed by the seed of Abraham. Then we come to the book of Revelation, and we're told that there are people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation there in his glorious kingdom. It's pointing to the Lord Jesus. So the picture's pointing to Christ, and now these promises are leading us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. Now, there's... There's a ton of other things that I've left out, and I recognize that. That is partially, beloved, on purpose. Because I don't want to point out everything in the text. I just want to whet your appetite. I want you to go search the Scriptures. 
You, you search the scriptures. You find out, wow, this seems to be pointing to Christ. With great clarity, this looks like this is pointing to the Lord Jesus. Remember, even the prophet, priest, and king, we need a perfect prophet. None of these prophets are perfect. They're sinful. We need somebody who can come perfectly. We need a priest who doesn't have to offer sacrifice on his own, for his, himself before he offers a sacrifice in our stead. And we need a perfect king. Good grief. Read First and Second Kings. As you read that, you go, is there anybody good coming down the pike? Yeah, there's a few that are good, but even them, they don't remove the high places. They don't, they don't, they're not perfect kings. They're still fallen men. We want a perfect king, a perfect priest. We want a perfect prophet. And then you come to the New Testament, and it just, it just beautifully falls in place that this is directing us to Jesus Christ. Our Bible is pointing us to the Lord Jesus. And so I just want to pose a question to you. As you study the Word... I pray and hope that you're seeing the Lord Jesus more and more. My fear, you guys, at times, is that there's one, two, who knows how many, that enter this building and truly don't know him. You know about him, you sit in this building, but you truly don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more I study the Word, the more I see the glory of this person. My heart beats harder and faster for those that don't have the Lord. The lost that are out out of this place, but, but you, you who perhaps read the Word, study the Word, but you don't know Him. You're not in Him. Perhaps playing church for years, hiding out in this with the saints. So I want to ask you a very pointed question. If I die today, I want this question asked. Are you in him? Are you in Jesus Christ? There's lots of churchiness that I cherish. I love potlucks. I love coffee after. I love the fellowship. I love the time with people. I love church life. But beloved, don't just hide in church life and miss Christ. It is all centered on this person. That's why, John, that statement you made just cut me to the heart beautifully that he is our salvation. And so when I see the entirety of the word directing attention to this glorious Savior, the concept of somebody in the presence of God's people and get all the blessings of being here and not have him. I'm sorry. <clears throat> the, the commitment of the elders of this church is you've got to climb over us if you're going to try to do that. So, I just want to plead with you. 
know, know for certain, just know for certain in your heart of hearts, that is my Savior. I am His child, and I'm banking on His perfection completely for my salvation. There's all kinds of really important stuff, you guys, in this life. It all pales in comparison to who, what you have done with the Savior. It all pales in comparison to what you've done with Jesus Christ. He's the center of it all. Let me pray. Lord, you have made it abundantly clear, way, way clear in your word that you have provided the the way of salvation. There is no other way to be righteous before you. I will never be in heaven apart from the perfect perfection of Jesus accredited to my account. I am not a saved man if I am banking on my works and my Christian practices without him. And I thank you, Father, for your your kindness to give me page after page after page of your precious word directing and funneling my attention to him. So, Father, I, I want to ask of you, on behalf of the souls in this room this morning, Father, I pray that you would grant those who are in you that beautiful sense of your presence and assurance of being yours. And Lord, those that are not, those that don't know you, those that are apart from you and know it in their heart, dear God, I plead with you, In your great mercy and grace, convict them, enlighten them. Lord, it's a great day when you allow us to see ourselves rightly before you. I pray, Father, you would reap a harvest, both in this building and out of this building, Father. For Lord, this is so magnificent to be in your Son. And the more I see my salvation rightly from your word, the more I'm astounded at what you've done. I can't believe what you have done. So Father, I pray that you would grant PCBC a very good, clear vision of who we are and whose we are. In Jesus' name, amen.